Good morning. We have gathered to worship, and I hadn't realized till I was pulling things together and reflecting on the day, praying about it, what a great way for, a great week for music here at Celebration. Uh, special music in our prelude, the handbells today. Monday evening, uh, the Holland Organ Guild will gather here, and Jane has said, oh, let's kind of keep that quiet, but I heard them rehearsing. What a great opportunity. You would have read about that in Celebration Inform. Building up to next week when the Holland Box Society is with us. Again, our thoughts on this are all about this very thing. Because God creates beauty, and we are created in the image of that God. He enables us to express and to that same beauty. So that's why we do it. It's not about entertainment. It's about living out the image of the great God in us. So carry us forth.
Amen. Thank you for your ministry. We've gathered to worship a God of great beauty. We see outside the window, we hear in this place, and we come to his word. Our call to worship is taken from Psalm 95. It's a responsive reading. I'll begin. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stand with me if you're able. Hymn number two, we'll have it on the screen. Oh, worship the King. Amen. And be seated, if you would, please. It's always a joy uh, to welcome you to worship on site. We've gathered. We get the benefit of the hour change, uh, though it's problematic in other ways. But we gather here on site, and thank you for those of you online with the live stream or recorded, letting us in this moment join you in your time and space. God has brought his people together in this way, so I welcome you with that in mind. I'm very excited. You can look up to the balcony and see we've completed some renovations to be a little more child-friendly space you'll see up there. We're still equipping and um, furnishing and stuff, but part of our commitment is to welcome well those whom God would bring. And as I've said often, I see every face here this morning as an answer to my prayers through this week. It's good to be together. A couple of quick worship slides. Um, One 
tomorrow is a blood drive. I will host it here at Hardawike. Um, you can sign up with redcross.org if, that, if you're able to give. Also, next Saturday, we will host a craft sale and secondhand market. This is a way that we raise funds for our missions. Uh, many of you have cleared out your basement or attic or kids' rooms, and we'll be uh, a part of that in that way. So we thank you. Um, this morning, I want to talk, too, about the upcoming box service. This will be next Sunday at 9 o'clock. And our goal with this and with the Holland Box Society is to return box music right where he started it and right where he intended it to be the worship of a local congregation. We learned some Wednesday night about how all that worked out and how marvelous it is. It's a great opportunity for us to kind of touch our roots, a great opportunity as well to welcome folks. Uh, we're hoping that people in the community will see this as interest and an opportunity and get a moment to know us and to know the God that we serve. So we're looking forward to that. I encourage you, if you get here at 9 o'clock and somebody's sitting in your seat, smile and welcome them and then sit behind them and pray for me during the sermon that I might make the grace of Jesus so compelling that they couldn't not come back. Now, some of you are going to be like me. I don't know much about classical music, and often it's hard to enjoy what you don't know much about. But I encourage you, join us as a body next week. Let's enter the experience and let it stretch you a bit. In a similar way, I would encourage every one of you, we can't do it all together this afternoon. But I encourage every one of you to come back at 1 o'clock sometime and worship with Miss Yon. I do that on occasion, and it's always encouraging, not because I understand any Spanish, but because it reminds me that the gospel of God's grace is big. Are you aware? Ponder this for a moment. Jesus has been worshiped as God in the flesh who died on the cross and rose again for the sins of the world. He has been worshiped as he made himself known in more languages, more cultures, across 20 centuries with more music styles than we could ever imagine, more than any other religion in history. Wow. We've made the texts and we've made recordings of the music uh, available online. If you'll go to the email that you got this morning, there's a click right with the celebration portion. You can get all of that. I put it up on a blog. I'm going to use it this week to kind of get my groove on with the music um, and be ready to enter into the presence of the Lord. So we have flyers, including they just brought some huge ones this morning. Take these, invite a friend, do what you can. I'm really looking forward to learning more about the bigness and the goodness of our God. Another uh, contact we have, if you would like to get our regular email, I send one out Thursday nights, and there's some others that go out as well, but just text the word connect to that number, and we'll look to make contact with you. It's our way of trying to build not just a gathering, but an expression of the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is more than just our feeling and our moment. We're part of a worldwide, transcultural, transhistorical movement. And one expression of that has been the Heidelberg Catechism. Let us respond and confess our faith, that faith handed down once and for all to the saints. Friends, 
What is it that is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by the Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's hear the music that draws us to that same truth.
Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. We give thanks to the Lord for your effort and praise. I was trying to count. I think we've got 13 folks involved in leading worship musically this morning. Let that ring close to your heart. That's the gifts of the body at work, what God is doing. Let's turn to him now, shall we? I, I want to pray. Father, we thank you that your faithfulness is great and it is everlasting and that you are good. We confess that is true even when there are times in our life, even long times and hard times, where it doesn't appear to be true or it doesn't feel like it's true or there are people telling us it's not true. But in this moment, Holy Spirit, work deep in our hearts to speak as the voice of the Good Shepherd to your sheep, that your faithfulness is great and that is our hope and our trust. And so we will face this day the circumstances of our life, our community, our nation, our planet, we will face those circumstances from the deep core of security in you that your faithfulness is great. Father, we pray for Hardawake and for the ministry that flows from this gathering of people. We pray for Pastor Aaron as he preaches at Watershed and Pastor JB. And we extend uh, our prayer for Pastor Florencio and for the ministry of Mission. And for Pastor Jeffrey at Angel Community Church, who was preaching last night, I communicated with him some to say we would be praying for the word as he preached it, that it might grow even this day. Thank you, Father, that here and near and far you have gathered your people to make known the glory of the gospel of your grace. Father, you've gathered us as a people, celebration, a particular group in a particular moment, and here we are. So we join together in the work of your people, the work of intercessory prayer. I'm going to ask you to just, I'll give you a moment of silence to pray for those in your circle of relationships who are facing illness, whatever sort it may be, wherever they are in the journey of healing, whatever their circumstances, pray the touch of God's um, grace and faithfulness. And Father, we pray too, in the face of loss, that your faithfulness would be our hope. We pray for those who grieve. I've been so aware this week as I've prayed for our ministry that we're about to finish up a year with uh, many losses and deaths, and that means we're about to enter a year of anniversaries. And here this day, the scripture brings us to the life of a struggling widow, Father, we see death and remember your word that it's the last enemy. But you've called us to grieve with those who grieve and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we take this moment, and I encourage you to just pray for God's peace and security in those in the circle of your life who've experienced loss and are grieving.
Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present as we finish preparations, but as we enter into the moment of worship next week, an opportunity to welcome our community and to reach back in our history and declare your grace. Be present in powerful ways. We begin. Nothing good happens apart from the foundation of the praying saints. So we pray that you would touch our community. We pray, too, that you would touch those in authority over us as you instruct us to pray in 1 Timothy. In our cycle this week, we're praying for local government and agents. Holland City, Park and Holland Township, Ottawa County, particularly school boards, Father, public, private, charter, so many different ways to make this step of commitment to our children with education and equipping. But we pray for your grace in our community that we might be instruments of your Holy Spirit insight and humility, that your people would be known as the first to serve. Be with us, Father. We pray in particular for this election that in the midst of the clutter and the misrepresentations, that you would speak to your people. And uh, Father, we might take it seriously as it were. I remember reading that this week. But always recognizing that you are the sovereign that we're called to serve. Our great king, we elect these under officials. Guide your people this week. Thank you that the gospel of your grace is a spirit that goes out, that serves, that makes Jesus known. Be with Tom uh, Skolton as he's in West Virginia with World Renew this week. Keep him well. Use him to your glory. Thank you that celebration can be a part here, near, and far to the work of your kingdom. Finally, Father, continue to raise up intercessors, people who recognize a particular gifting and calling. I brought to the place of prayer, taught by the Holy Spirit, faithful as you would call them. So raise up this gift of intercession, even as together we as your body pray just as Jesus taught us using these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask any kids, and I'll let you determine who you are, that want to join me up here for the video. I see Miss Becky coming forward to uh, be a part of things. Yeah, let's uh, settle in up here. Each week we've been watching a video that kind of captures the chapter that we've been reading in the story, and so we want to be a part of that again. So why don't you come up and join us here? We've got room for everybody. I'm going to sit right here with you. And we got room. Gosh, we got a bunch. You don't mind if I join folks. Maybe you need to sit back there with Mr. Lee. How's that? <laughs> Off we go. Good morning. There was a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi who lived in Israel during the time when the judges were in charge. 
There was a great shortage of food in Israel that caused them to move to a foreign country called Moab. Elimelech and Naomi raised two sons, and when their sons grew up, they each married women from Moab. Sadly, Naomi's husband and two sons died, and Naomi was left alone with her two daughter-in-laws. She told them that she was going to move back to Israel, and that they should return to their own families. But one of the women, Ruth, refused to leave Naomi. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So Naomi and Ruth moved back to Israel to begin a new life. One day, Ruth went to a field to pick up the grain that the farmers had left behind. Little did she know that the owner of the field was Boaz, a relative of Naomi. Boaz was kind to her and offered her to come find food whenever she wanted. Naomi was getting older, so she came up with a plan to provide for Ruth once she was gone. She suggested that Ruth sneak into Boaz's bedroom while he was sleeping, uncover his feet, and ask him to take care of her. Ruth took Naomi's advice. She uncovered Boaz's feet and lay down next to him. In the middle of the night, Boaz woke up startled. Ruth asked him to care for and protect her. Boaz agreed, but said he needed to first buy the land she lived on so that he would have the right to marry her. So Boaz brought together the decision makers of his town and asked for permission to buy the land. The leaders gave Boaz permission and prayed that God would help Ruth be a great wife. They were married and had a son named Obed, who would soon become the grandfather of one of the greatest leaders Israel had ever known. Well, you know, some of that story is real sad. If you just stop in the middle, it's about a woman and she loses her husband and her two son-in-laws. But what we see in the whole story is that even in the middle of sadness, God can be at work to do great things. And Naomi ends up joyful and happy, even though there's been death in her life. So part of the good news for us is always this, that even in the face of real sadness, God is at work. Let me pray for you, and then I'll send those off who are going. Father, we thank you for your kindness and goodness, and we pray that you would help us to realize how deeply loved we are, even in the midst of sadness, and that we might move forward in that hope. Thank you that your faithfulness is great, and that your gospel is true, even when we don't feel it, or think we don't see it. Be our assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said together, amen. Now, I think everybody grades three on down. Is that it? We're headed down. And those others of you older folks may want to head off to your own seat. And we'll get everybody settled. You know, we've been taking huge chunks of the scripture as we read through the story. I'm really thankful, and I've heard the response from so many of you about how the opportunity to kind of read through the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation without some of the uh, genealogies and repeated history, those sorts of things. This becomes an opportunity to see God at work in that upper story 
the true, perfect, holy God as he works out in the lower story through broken people. This was a great week in that we only had four chapters. I uh, read through this yesterday uh, once again to time it. In less than 15 minutes, you could read this whole uh, weekly reading, four chapters from the book of Ruth. And I hope to give you a slice of it so that you might see with gospel eyes this truth that even in the midst of a hard, broken world where there is real sadness, there's also real hope. So I'm going to read the selected verses from the four chapters of Ruth. Uh, follow along with me uh, as you're able, beginning at Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Whew. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Further in, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. When her two daughters-in-law, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. But then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Well, as it turns out, Orpah does go back, but Ruth in this uh, expression of faith and commitment to both uh, Naomi and the God of Naomi, the Lord, she goes with her. And so we read further in chapter one. So Naomi and Ruth went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi who left more than a decade ago? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty was ma has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. They arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now the story goes on and you saw some of it there. During the harvest, all the workers are camped out in the field and um, Ruth or, or sends Naomi there, glean. That means to say the harvesters will leave some of the seed. They'll operate their business inefficiently for the sake of jobs for the poor is what that means. Ruth will be able to collect more. And finally, Boaz recognizes in her a woman of good character. 
And so he promises to take her in to be her kinsman redeemer. And the story ends. We've just heard this moment where Naomi struggles with bitterness. Call me bitter. That's what Mara translate means. But all that's behind her now. God has provided a a husband and care for the whole family and now a new son who will become in the line of David. So Ruth chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Excuse me, that was me. Sorry, guys, I was trying to cover the cough there. Um, I guess my cough was a little worse than that. Let's turn to the Father and pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you have made provision for us, that you have spoken into human language the truth of your word, and that you have preserved it across years in this text. And now by your grace, we have opportunity to read and to hear and to learn. Holy Spirit, complete the process that you have, (coughs) excuse me, superintended. Illumine our hearts, minds to receive all that you have. Fill us with grace to know you, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen, and amen. Uh, Brent, excuse me for just a second. Pardon me, y'all. Okay. Call me bitter is what Naomi says. Call me bitter. It's amazing that it's in the scripture, but it's a real and true experience of life, isn't it? You know, I mentioned that it takes about 15 minutes to read through this, and so I did it once again as my own uh, discipline yesterday for a multiple time, as I often do through the week. And I remember being struck by this line on page 122, Ruth 2.3, says, as it turned out. And so in that reading yesterday, the Holy Spirit just really challenged to my heart that we often live seeing one thing, but when we look back, we can say, as it turned out. That's God at work. Often we don't recognize his hand until we look back. We never know the Lord's planned ending for our immediate moment and circumstances. And so I'm praying this morning that whatever your immediate circumstances, you might hear this as a word of love and hope. As it turned out, you will say one day. 
Well, the book of Ruth is an interesting uh, single standalone kind of setting. And it begins in this way, in the days when the judges ruled. And that should bring us back to what we talked about last week. It closes with this verse. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone was their own ruler. What they thought was true was what they lived. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? One of the great truths was that Israel, the people of God, were living in this cycle where life would be good so they'd begin to live for themselves. And then when people live as if they are God, when they live for themselves, there's consequences to that. And the consequences stack and stack and stack. They cascade until there's oppression and brokenness. Oppression is the fruit of a life lived for self. But in his mercy, God would rescue his people from that oppression. He'd raise up a judge and he'd bring them to a new and stable life until once again, it's all about me. I'll do as I see fit. And that decision, build your life in that way, brings a cascade of consequences and oppression. So in the midst of this cycle, Ruth wants us to see two things in this book. The first is this, that the Lord was still at work. Things were happening. There's famine, there's Moabites, there's death, there's all these things. Sometimes life looks hard, but in the midst of that, there'll come a time when you'll look back and say, as it turned out, you'll see the Lord was at work. The other thing that I think should be very encouraging for us and a good thing to remind ourselves is this, that even in this time of cascading consequences and oppression, even in a time such as that, there were still faithful people. There was still Boaz who would live not only the letter of the law. It's interesting. He instructed his harvesters about the gleaners. And he didn't just say, oh, the law requires us to let them pick up grain. He said, no, be generous to the poor. Give them opportunity. Care for them. He respected the rule of law and all that it would take if he was to marry Ruth. He was a man who lived for God in the midst of a culture where everyone did as they saw fit. Let that encourage you. Boaz becomes an expression of what it means to live as a faithful follower of the gospel, even in a time that's turned its back on the culture. I've been thinking a lot over the past several years about what it means to engage our changing culture with the gospel of God's grace. And increasingly, I'm struck by the call to be like Boaz and to live out an alternative culture. The world, by the grace of God, should be able to look at his people and see what it means to repent. They should see what it means to live a life of forgiveness. I'm not sure what I think of those people, but they certainly care for one another and love for one another. Why, that's one of the kindest places you could find yourself. I pray for the day when the gospel might be so alive in us that people see that and glorify our Father who is in heaven.
To engage our culture would be to live like Boaz, to live as an alternative culture for the world to see. I hope the world sees what grace is because they can look at us and see what it looks like. It'll be more about kindness and trust and forgiveness and care than it will be about perfection. I'll tell you something, I'll take a risk here. I will be voting on Tuesday and I'd even be willing to tell you how I'm voting and why I'm voting for who I am. Friends can do that and still be friends, can't they? Even when they disagree. But I'm not wasting the time we have here this morning on that. I've got something far more powerful, far more important, far more world-changing than just what levers I'm pulling on Tuesday. I have the moment to help you see and experience that the God of the universe himself has opened a door of rescue because he loves you. Not because you're worth it, but because of who he is. He loves you in spite of your brokenness. And because of that, because of what he did, you can respond to the people and circumstances in your life differently than you could otherwise. That's what's important. Guess what? We're going to vote Tuesday, and you know what's happening in another two years? I hope we're voting. But whether we are or whether we aren't, if you don't begin to have your heart and mind shaped by the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, you won't be able to face whatever may come Wednesday. This, friends, is what it means to live faithfully in our time. Now, Ruth is a book filled with what I love to call threads of gospel tapestry. We could look at any of a number of folks. I only get one Sunday rather than three or four. We could look at these people. There's Ruth. Now, Ruth was an outsider. She was a, a Moabite, which means her ethnic family began with the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter. Yuck. That's why when I read about Moab, we kind of read over it and think, but uh, th these are not uptown people. If, if you brought a Moabite to your Thanksgiving dinner as your new date, everybody would be thinking, whoa, that's not good. But God made a way for the outsider because that's always been his plan. Right back with Abraham, all the nations will be blessed by you. All the nations. Anytime the people of God think it's about God's blessing for them, they've missed what God is doing. God makes a way for Ruth to go from outsider to in the lineage of David who becomes the lineage of Jesus, the rescuer. Boaz, what an amazing fellow. He's an he's a image of what Jesus will be. He's the shadow. Jesus is the rock that casts it. Now, you see this cultural practice that looks very odd to us. Men fathering children with their sister-in-law for a deceased brother. Jeepers. Preserve the property and family line. How does that work? Kind of weird to me. Let it be weird to you because we're not going to try to reinstate it. But the good news is this, even in an odd culture, the Lord can be at work to care for the marginalized and for his people. Boaz becomes one who has the position to recognize, to rescue Naomi and Ruth. 
even though it will cost him, he will take upon himself that cost to provide for their future. Oh, I hear the message of Jesus in that. See how Boaz lives out not only the letter of the Old Testament law, but the very spirit of it with his generosity in his business, his farm. This morning, though, I want to focus on Naomi. It's a hard and a sad story, but it's a true story. Naomi, she starts with a loving husband and two sons. And in this odd Old Testament culture, I don't want to go back there and live in it, but in this Old Testament culture, life could hardly get any better than that if you're a woman. At the end of the story, she's a grandmother. She's provided for and she's secure. And King David is even going to be from her lineage. Well, that was the beginning and this was the end. But don't miss the hard truth of the middle. The hard truth of the middle. Here she is in this focus in Ruth 1.20. She's broken and she's responded to her pain with bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Marach. It's the word, the Hebrew word for bitter. Call me Marach because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Interesting, she sees the Lord is the one who brought her back. But she's honestly wounded and honestly bitter. Why call me Naomi? He's afflicted me and brought a misfortune on me. Friends, we need to let the Scripture be the real Scripture and the people of the Scripture be real people. Naomi has taken upon herself the identity of bitterness. That's who I am. I deserve better. What did I do? Friends, her experience of suffering loss is very real telling her, God has his ways, hardly matters in that moment. Telling her to just have more faith and she can change her circumstances. No, let Naomi be Naomi here. She's wounded and suffering. We're called not to denial for our suffering friends. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Her loss is very real, and we need to let that sink in. Her response is what it is. See, for Naomi, these real losses, the first is leaving. In the days when the judges rule, it says, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, went to live among the country of those icky Moabites. She had to leave the tabernacle where God was worshipped, the habits and the customs of God's people, family. She had to leave. After she'd left, she had a season of losing. Chapter 1, verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. That's hard. At least she was left with two sons, unless you go another two verses. After that, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. So here's a woman in that culture without visible means of support. Friends, I want to tell you something. In that time, there was no medical insurance. There was only family. 
There was no social security or pension. There were children that can bring you into their family. And as they lived at a subsistence level, they invited you to share subsistence with them. Naomi had none of that. These are real losses. Finally, she's alone. In Ruth 1, uh, verse 8, we read, Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each one of you, to your mother's home. Now, Orpah did, but Ruth takes a step and makes a commitment. Your God will be my God. I'll go where you go. Your people will be my people. Suddenly, there's a ray of light in the darkness. But we need to let these times press in on us. Naomi's losses are very real. Still, in the midst of that, Naomi has a very real security. For you see, the Lord is at work. We can look at all four chapters, even when we let chapter one rest in on us. Yes, she was bitter and feeling alone. That's the lower story, but in the upper story, God is at work. God has been preparing a Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, someone who's in the place with the authority and the calling to care for her, to raise up children, to maintain the property, all those promises in that odd culture. God had provided for her need and for all of that to be met. The Lord was at work. Was she bitter? And suffering, yes. Was God at work? Yes. How do you reconcile those two, Bill? I don't. There's going to be moments where we will look at our world and say, what? And God will say, trust me, I'm at work. There'll come a day when you'll look back and say, as it turned out. So the Lord is at work, and that's her security. And her losses are not final. This has meant so much to me over this past year. I'm sad in the face of death by the separation and loss that's real, but it's never final. One of the most moving moments of 40 years in ministry was at the death of a mother and wife, and the 13-year-old daughter stood up. This was actually a Washington, D.C. secure funeral is all I will say. The mother had been killed by Al-Qaeda. There was not enough left of the mother to even bury. And the 13-year-old daughter stands up and says, thank you for being here. Thank you for your love for us. We understand what you mean, that you're sorry for our loss. But I was talking with my brothers this morning and you know what? Something's only lost if you don't know where it is. And because we know where mom is, we're going to live differently. Loss is real, but it's never, ever final. You see, this circumstance challenges Naomi with a very real decision. Which fork in the road? Where will I go? How will I navigate the pathways of my heart? The first one really is this. It's bitterness. And she enters into that. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Naomi, in this moment, has taken on bitterness and disappointment as her identity. Bitterness is who I am. 
bitterness. Very often it's the result of a disappointment in my own self-reliance. It's an entitled attitude. I worked. I played by the rules. I don't deserve this. It presses in when trust in self or trust in circumstances is crushed. The siren song of bitterness. This isn't right. I won't be bowled over. We know, and the scripture is clear, that the story doesn't end here. And there's a note of grace even in her struggling with bitterness. Even Naomi's bitterness at this point never disqualifies her from the Lord's love. Have you ever stumbled? I know what the answer to that is. It's yes. Have you ever been able to admit or name or face your stumbling? your fear, your bitterness, your anger, your unforgiveness. I want to tell you, those things are real, but they need not be final. They need not be final. Naomi and her suffering and her bitterness, the Lord is at work to bring something better for her. Friends, in the face of our suffering, God calls us to trust. I want to tell you something, and I've seen this so many times. Many of you have, many of you have experienced it more deeply than I have. But if anyone ever tells you that trusting God is easy or immediate or without cost or sacrifice, they don't know what they're talking about. But trust all the same. The discipline of trust, the commitment of trust, a community that calls us and carries us in trust. Job would say in the midst of his suffering, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. I don't know why this is happening, but I will trust him. I always love that great statement of Simon Peter in John 6, 68. Many of the disciples of Jesus are vacating and heading off. Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to fall off the cliff of bitterness or resentment or anger or unforgiveness? Simon says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Trust. In hard times, the suffering is real, but God is just as real. I was thinking as I was preparing this week about another widow that has shaped a life that shaped my life. Perhaps you've heard of uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. This is a picture of them from the 50s. I wanted to include that so that you're aware these are real folks. They look like people would in the 50s. And Jim Elliot is well known for us saying, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim and Elizabeth were part of a team of American missionaries in the early 1950s. They relocated their families to live among tribal people deep in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador. They were hard at work learning the life of these people, their culture, the language, in order to translate the New Testament in the language of their own heart. And so bring the gospel of God's grace to a people group, a group of people 
who had never heard of a God who would lay aside his glory and his comfort, a God who would take on human form and give his life on the cross in order to rescue a people who served other gods. The Eliots and their friends were living out the joy of their calling. That calling made them aware of a neighboring group of people, the Kiacha, who were even more isolated. And the team began to make efforts to contact and bridge the gap to them. Now I'm going to read to you from here out some editing from the January 23rd, 1956 edition of Time Magazine. This was news for the whole country. And it says, the entry from diary of missionary Peter Fleming under the heading, Friendlier All the Time. This was the great day for the advance of the gospel of Christ in Ecuador. Ed was at one end of the beach, Jim Elliott at the other, and Roger Yadorian, Nate Saint, and I were in the center of that beach. From time to time, we shouted words of the Aqua language. Suddenly, we heard a loud masculine voice from the other side of the river, and three Aqua-speaking people of the Kiacha tribe appeared. Two women and one man waved to us from the opposite riverbank. And thus occurred the contact for which we had prayed to God. The three people went over to that primitive camp where the five men were. And the man of the three even took a short plane ride with them. Wrote Nate Saint in his diary, we have a friendlier feeling for these fellows all the time. Contact continued and several weeks later, Nate Saint reported their progress by radio to the missionaries' wives at their base camp. Ah! He said with satisfaction to his wife, here come some Achaeus we've not seen before. I'll call you back at four o'clock. Four o'clock came and went and went and went. Search planes later spotted the body of one missionary not far from the wrecked and looted missionary plane. From that point, a ground crew worked its way to the scene. The searchers located the bodies of the other four the land party reached the riverbank at week's end, found that four had died of spear wounds and one of machete slashes. Around the shaft of one spear was wrapped a few pages torn from a Bible. The dead were identified and buried right where they lay. The year after Jim died, Elizabeth wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor an account of the team's mission and their martyrdom. She writes in the thick of her own mourning. Her words come straight from the heart of someone who is very involved in this and deeply touched by this tragic events. God is God, she wrote. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It's the same spirit that taunted, if you be the son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief. There is even rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this to find men unless... After all, she writes, those men had long since given themselves without reservation to do the will of God. The story and the power of the gospel continue in amazing ways. You, I really encourage you to read any of the books related to this. The families, widows and children, would pull back to the United States, but shortly thereafter they returned to finish the translation work. Then opportunity opened up in two of the widows, Elizabeth was one of them, moved with children to the village and began to evangelize and translate the gospel for them, to see a move of the gospel, to see churches planted. They would meet the men 
from among those who had killed their husbands. It's an amazing story of what costly grace in the midst of suffering might look like. And it takes time. Elizabeth would eventually remarry. Her second husband was a theology professor at Gordon-Conwell. Elizabeth and her husband, while there, would disciple a, a young couple that stayed in America as pastors, Tim and Kathy Keller. So from Tim and Elizabeth to Tim and Kathy to us. Much of the detail of the decades of gospel reconciliation and trans, transformation are in the book End of the Spear by Steve Saint in the Heart of White Library. Elizabeth and Naomi, widows in real loss, widows with every reason to turn bitter, but with a hope of the gospel that would draw and slowly and challengingly empower them to Turn to trust. That's who God is calling us to be. That's who God wants us to be as we journey with others. Trust as Naomi overcomes bitterness. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is about real life, which means it's often about really hard things. But in the midst of that, there comes a clarion voice, you are my beloved. And we thank you that we see at the cross what you would do to rescue people who don't deserve it. And as we see that clearly, our hearts are drawn, we make commitments, we desire, guide us, build us, lead us, fill us with great hope. May we see that even in the midst of hard life, there is a hope that's beyond this life, and so we live the life that we have differently. Help that be true in our lives, Father. Guard us, guide us. Help us to remind one another with tenderness and with hope. As it turned out, God would bring a Savior. That is our hope. We pray in his mighty name. And all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. Hymn number 590, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. God equips and calls us to sing his glory. Let's stand as you're able and sing to his glory.
Dutch Calvinist singing Wesleyan hymns. It does not get any better than that, this side of glory. From the book of Jude, the blessing of God for his people. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. And amen.